In the name of Christ, the Lord of all, amen. There is an experience that is common to many, if not most of us who are gathered here today. And that is the experience of preaching at your hometown church, the congregation that you grew up in. Maybe you remember the first time that you preached in your home congregation. And what an exciting time that was, not only for you, but especially for your family and friends who were gathered there. Relatives traveled from a distance to see you. Your mother glowed with pride. Your father beamed with joy. Grandpa and grandma were here, loving it all. And everybody was so affirming. They were acclaiming your first sermon. It was all so positive, all so affirming. I remember my first sermon at my home congregation in Grand Island, Nebraska. And after I had preached, people came up to me and they were affirming me and they were wishing me well for the future. And one woman came up to me and gave me a big hug. She had been my second grade teacher at the Lutheran school. And she commonly, back when I was in second grade, called me her little monster. <laughs> and so she said to me as she embraced me, now I really know that God works miracles. <laughs> because even you can be a preacher, David. Well, in our text here today, we have Jesus coming to his hometown in Nazareth. And it's, everybody's a Twitter. There's an electricity and excitement in the town. And they gather in the synagogue in order to see him and hear him. Their hometown boy, the son of the congregation, is back. The wonder boy, the one who's been doing wonders in other towns, is here. And they fill the sanctuary. They fill the synagogue. The text here says that every eye was fastened on him. He had their rapt attention. And he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, read it, did a brief homily on that scroll, and the message was done. And everybody beamed. They all thought that this was a great message. They acclaimed him. He got rave reviews. Verse 22 says, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. All a positive and affirming response. All smiles and delight. You'd think that's how it ends. But it doesn't. In fact, suddenly things turn south. A rain cloud pours on the parade. A skunk arrives at the picnic. The warm fuzzies become cold pricklies. Everything turns sour. And why? What's the cause? Well, Jesus is the cause. He causes this positive, affirming situation to suddenly become dour and intense. And why? What does he do? 
Well, you could say that he takes one from the playbook of Donald Trump, insulting the people who he's speaking to and alienating them. Basically what he says to them is, I know why you've gathered here. You just want me to perform a miracle, to do a wonder. But I'll tell you, no true prophet is really welcomed in his hometown, claiming to be a true prophet. More than that, when you look in the Old Testament and you see the prophets of old, God's legitimate prophets, they were rejected by their hometown folk. And so God sent them to the Gentiles, to the pagans, to the heathens. That's what's going to happen here. Wow. Well, that went over like a lead balloon. He says things that aren't pleasing to their ears at all. In fact, it's very clear that Jesus didn't take the Dale Carnegie course to win friends and influence people. What's happened here? And the people don't like it. They respond in kind. This is what their response is. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and threw him out of the, their town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Ouch. Now you and I might have preached some bad sermons before, but I don't think ever so bad that it formed a lynch mob that drug you out of the church and were willing to stone you or throw you off a cliff. Why did this have to happen? Why did Jesus have to spoil everything to make it all turn sour? What's the reason for Jesus' words which evoke such an extreme negative reaction? Well, in effect, the townspeople are saying, Jesus, we thought we knew you. But Jesus is saying, I know you. He knew them. He had grown up with them. But he knows them in a deeper way. Almost with x-ray vision, he looks into their hearts and into their minds and into their motives, and he sees what it is they want from him. Christ's words here reveal that these people regarded him not only as one of their own, but as one who they owned. They think they own him. They expected of him certain privileges and prerogatives, special treatment and favors. They expected him to perform, literally perform miracles for them and do their bidding. They wanted to use him. They wanted to control him. In short, they wanted to domesticate Jesus, to domesticate him. One dictionary defines that word as this, to take home for one's own use and purposes. That's what they wanted to do. Take him home, keep him home for their own use and purposes. 
Several years ago, there was a phrase that trended in American Christianity. And the phrase was, Jesus is my homeboy. You might remember that. Those words were printed on t-shirts and ball caps and buttons and accessories and so forth. Jesus is my homeboy. Well, what's a homeboy? A homeboy is a hometown buddy that you've got an in with. Your hometown buddy. And that confers a special kind of status. Like, I'm in with the big man. I'm in with the superstar. He does my bidding. He's my BFF. So I've got a special claim on him. Well, we may not literally wear that shirt, but oftentimes we wear that attitude. I own Jesus. I own him for my own agenda, for my own plans, for my own purposes. I own him. And ultimately, that attitude is idolatry. It's idolatry. Because I'm the one who calls the shots, and Jesus is simply my homeboy, my attendant. Well, Jesus will have nothing to do with this. And he simply walks away from it all. In verse 30 it says, But passing through their midst, he went away. Isn't it ironic that these people who wanted a miracle now got one? Jesus miraculously passes through their midst. They have grasped him, but he just kind of shuts them off and passes through their midst. But it wasn't the miracle they wanted. It wasn't according to their agenda. They had took, taken him up to the hill to kill him. But he didn't follow their agenda, and he doesn't follow our agenda either. But he does follow someone's agenda. The one whose agenda he follows is his father. He follows God's agenda. He follows God's purposes and plan and God's agenda leads him to another angry crowd eventually a crowd that calls out kill him kill him crucify him and God's agenda leads him to another hill the hill of Golgotha and God's agenda leads him to another execution effort but in this case the executioners prevail in their task. But then, Jesus did the greatest miracle of all. The miracle nobody expected. A miracle that was on no one's agenda. He rises from the dead. That hadn't been in their script. That hadn't been on their scope. That didn't conform to their expectations. But that was the plan. That was God's plan. That was God's plan for us. 
and for our salvation. All that we might not own him, but that he might own us. He has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, purchased and won me from sin, death, and the power and the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. And why? That I might be his own. That I might be his own. Not him being my own. I don't own him. But that I might be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Oh yes, he has claimed us as his own. And so now, we claim him, not on our terms, but on his. Amen. Please stand to sing.